0: Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit for listeners of Greater Than Code. You can find all of the details at linode.com slash greater than code. Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24, 7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, you can use your $100 in credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. Visit linode.com slash greater than code and click on the Create Free Account button to get started.
1: and welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 223. My name is Jacob Stobel, and I'm joined with my co-host, Rain Henriks.
2: Thanks, Jacob. And I'm here with my friend and also stranger because we haven't done this together in months, (laughs) Jessica Kerr.
3: Thank you, Rain. And I am really excited today because our guest is David McGiefer, Twitter handle, D-R-M-A-C-I-V-E-R, David is best known as the developer of Hypothesis, the property-based testing library for Python, and he's currently doing a PhD based on some of that work. But he also writes extensively about emotions, life, and society, and sometimes coaches people on an eclectic mix of software development, intellectual, and emotional skills. As you can probably tell, David hasn't decided what he wants to do when he grows up. And, I mean, that's the best, because if you had decided, well, then... So few possibilities would be open. David, hello.
0: Hi, Jessica. Great to be here.
3: All right, I'm going to ask the obligatory question: What is your superpower, and how did you acquire it?
0: So, um, as you saw me complaining about on Twitter, this tra- this question doesn't translate very well outside of the United States. So, yeah, which is a fascinating. Um, <laughs> point. I'm a, I'm a bit too British to say nice things about myself without sounding like I'm being self-deprecating. So, self-deprecating I thought about self-deprecating. It is. So I I thought about this one for a while, and I decided that the answer is that I'm really good at being confused. Uh, And uh, in particular, I have a much more productive response to being confused than it seems like most people do. Because, like, basically, the world is super confusing. And I think, like... I never know what's going on, but then I sort of notice that I know don't know what's going on, and I look at it, and I'm just like, hmm, this is weird, right? And then I read a book about it, or I sort of poke at it a bit, and then I'm not less confused, but I'm like less confused about that like one little facet of the world, and have found like ten new things to be confused about. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, nice. And usually, I can then turn this into being slightly better at the thing I was previously confused about, or. Uh, writing about it and making everyone else differently confused, and they started with um, and <laughs> confused. that's
3: that is a win. That's called learning. Yeah,
0: yeah exactly. And <laughs> so that uh, and so this this is where a lot of the sort of the writing you were talking about out comes from. And essentially, about two years ago, I just started turning these skills less on software development and more just going like life. It doesn't make sense, right? <laughs> <laughs> and sort of noticing a whole bunch of things I needed to work on. And then that a lot of these were shared common problems. So I'm, if anything, far more confused about about all of it uh, than I was two years ago. But I'm less confused about the things I was confused about then and sort of seem to be gradually becoming a more functional human being as a result of the process. So yay confusion.
3: That superpower, the productive response to confusion, ties in with your reaction to the superpower question in general, which is, uh, as Americans, we're supposed to be, we want to have power. We want to be special. We want to be unique. We want to make our unique contribution to the world. And as part of that, we're not comfortable being confused because we need to know things. We need to be smart. We need to convey strength and competence and be the best. I hate the I hate the superlatives. I hate the, com- <laughs> I hate the implied competition there. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, instead, we could open our hearts to our own confusion and embrace that. Be comfortable being uncomfortable.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the things that often comes up for me is that is it's a thing that I, I think slightly intentioned with this American tendency you're pointing at, which is that I kind of want to be the best, but I don't really want to be better than other people. I just want to be like better than me that better than I am now and so i wrote a post a while ago about norms of excellence like what would a community look like and which helped everyone be like the best version of themselves and sort of one of the top lists was basically that everyone has to be comfortable with not being good at things but another is just that you have to not want to be better than other people you just need to be need to want to be better and again this is sort of where a lot of the writing comes from i'm just I've just gone, well, if this was helpful to me. It's probably helpful to other people. And that's not not a sort of sense of wanting to change the world and wanting to sort of put my own stamp on things. And it does require a certain amount of sort of self-importance to go, yes, uh, my writing is important and other people will like to read it. But then other people like to read it. So that's fine.
3: <laughs> and if well, they don't, did, that's fine, too. You didn't make anyone read it, but you did yeah. start a newsletter and let people read it.
2: Mm-hmm
1: does this like way of thinking sort of reflect a journey that you took in your life? Because I think about like my company and my team and like how incredibly generous everybody is. And even still, I just find it's natural to like compare myself to everyone else and needing to not be on the bottom, you know? And part of me wonders if that's just like a natural human tendency, but uh, just because it's natural, natural doesn't make it's good. Yeah. Basically I'm asking, how do I stop doing that?
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely not something I've always been perfectly good at, but I think the thing that sort of that helped me figure out how to do this was essentially being simultaneously at the bottom of the social rung, but also like super arrogant. So <laughs> um, it's, it's it's your classic nerd kid thing, right? It's completely failing at people, but also going, "But I'm better than all of you because I'm smart," and then essentially gradually having the rough edges filed off the second part and realizing how much I had to learn off the first part. So I think sometimes my attitude here to a lot of this is basically to imagine I was a time traveler and basically basically going back in time and sort of telling little David all the things that it would be. it was really frustrating that nobody could explain to me. And I sadly haven't yet managed to perfect my time machine but I can still pay it forward right if nobody was able to explain this to me and I'm able to explain it to other people then surely the world is a better place in which in with me freely handing out this information and I don't think it's possible or even like entirely desirable to completely eliminate the Sort of comparing comparing yourself to others, and in fact, I'd go as far as to say like comparing yourself to others is good. But I think the
3: it's how do we have a productive response to comparing yes. ourselves to others?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's a great section in The Inner Game of Tennis, which is a book that I have very mixed feelings about. It has some but has some great bits uh, where he talks about competition. So if you think of a mountain climber, a mountain climber is basically pitting themselves against the mountain right they're trying to climb the mountain because it is hard and you could absolutely take a helicopter to the top of the mountain but that wouldn't be the point right it's you you are you are improving yourself by trying a hard thing I mean you're improving yourself in the sense that you're getting better at climbing mountains you might not be improving yourself in any sort of fully generalizable way okay <laughs> um, and when you are playing tennis because this is a book about tennis you um, you are engaged in competition with each other, and you're each trying to be better than the other. And in this context, essentially, like what you are doing is you are being the mountain for each other. so you are you are creating the obstacles that the other people kind can, o- can overcome and sort of improve themselves that way. And in doing this, you're not you're not just being a dick about it. you're not um, you're not doing this in order to crush them. you're doing this in order to, Provide them with the challenge that lets them lets them grow. And when you sort of think about it this way, other people being better than you is great because there's this mountain there, and you can climb it now. And by by climbing the mountain, you can you, know, you can improve yourself. And the thing that sort of stops everyone becoming great is feeling threatened by them being better, rather than treating it as an opportunity for learning.
3: Yeah, trying to dynamite the mountain instead of climbing it. Mm-hmm whereas when you are the mountain for someone else you can also like provide them footholds. Brian, mm-hmm. do you have an example of this?
2: I sure do, Jess, thanks for asking. So I was just <laughs> 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 I was just thinking while you were talking about this about um speedrunning and speedrunning communities hmm. because speedrunning is about testing yourself against a video game which in this case serves the purpose of the mountain. But it's also about competing against other speedrunners. And if it was purely competitive, you wouldn't see the behaviors, the reciprocity in the communities, like sharing speedrunning strats, being really happy when other people break your record. And I think it's really interesting that that community is both competitive, but there's also a lot of reciprocity, a lot of sharing.
1: It's like the way the science community should work. It's like, oh, you made this new discovery because of the discovery I shared with you. And now like, I'm proud that like my discovery is like this foundation for all these other little things that now people can be in resolve in 10 seconds instead of 30.
3: <laughs> yeah. Give other people a head, a head start on the confusion you've already had so that they can start resolving new confusions.
1: Yeah,
0: absolutely. And definitely one of my hopes with all of this writing is to encourage other people to do it themselves. Earlier this year, I was getting getting people very into daily writing practices, um, and just trying to get people to write as much as possible. I now think that was slightly a mistake because I think daily writing is a great thing to do for about a month, and then it just gets too much. So I will probably see if I can figure out other ways of encouraging people to pick uh, to notice their own confusion, as you say, and uh, and share what they've learned from it. But sadly, can't quite get them to do it daily. <laughs>
3: This morning's newsletter, uh, you talked about, okay, okay, I can do daily writing, but now I want to get better at writing. I've got to go do something I'm worse at.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the daily writing is still a really good transitional stage for most people. It's, I think, sort of give more context for this newsletter for people listening, basically, most of my writing to date, I just write in like a one or two hour sitting from start to finish. I don't really edit it. I just click publish. And I've gotten very good at writing like that. I think that most people are, I mean, sometimes it's a bit obvious that I haven't edited it because there are obvious typos and the like. But like by and large, I think it is a reasonably high standard of writing and I'm not, not embarrassed to be putting it out in that quality. But the fact that I'm not editing it is starting to be sort of the limiter on growth for me. It's that it's never going to really get better than it currently is. It's certainly not going to allow me to tackle larger projects than I can currently tackle without that editing skill. And so, no.
3: <laughs> I just pictured you trying to sit down and write a book in one session. <laughs> yeah, then you'd be tired.
0: Yeah, I've tried doing that with papers even and it doesn't really work. And I mean, I do edit papers, but I'm very visibly really bad at editing papers. And it's one of my weaknesses as a academic is that I still haven't really got the hang of paper writing.
3: Do you edit other people's papers?
0: I don't edit other people's papers, but I provide sort of feedback on other people's writing and sort of say, this is what worked for me. This is what didn't work for me. Here are some typos you made. And so it, it's not reading it and providing good feedback on things that is the difficult part of editing for me. It is much more... I mean, honestly, it's an emotional problem more than anything else. It's not really that I'm bad at editing at a technical level. I'm okay at editing at a technical level. Um, I just hate doing it. <laughs> it's, uh, that is
3: most problems we have, right? In the end, it's yeah. an emotional problem.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's, And I think that is definitely one of the sort of the interesting things I've been figuring out in my sort of last two years of sort of working on learning more about emotions and the various skills around them is just going, oh, right. It's not sort of like this abstract thing where you are learning to be better at emotions and then nothing will change in your life because um, you're just going to be happier about everything. I mean, some people do approach it that way. But for me, it's very much been, oh, I'm learning to be good at emotions because this really concrete problem that I don't understand, it turns out that that's just feelings. Um, (laughs) It's like, for example, like the literature on how to have a clean home. Turns out that's mostly anxiety management and guilt management. It's like fundamentally cleaning your home is not a hard problem. But not procrastinating on cleaning your home is a hard problem. Not feeling intensely guilty and aversive about the dirty dishes in the sink and us putting them off for a week. I don't do that, but just as a hypothetical example. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not a hypothetical example. I think like a specific example that comes from the book Unfuck Your Habitat, which is a great example of essentially it's a book that's about it contains tips like fill a spray bottle with water and white vinegar and also tips about. How to manage your time and how to deal with um, the fact that you're mostly not cleaning because of shame—that sort of thing—and writing books are another great example where eighty percent about managing the feelings associated with writing. It turns out practical problems are pretty much pretty much all come down to emotions, at least practical life problems.
2: Sorry, I was just buying "Unfuck Your Habitat" real quick. <laughs> It's a good book, I recommend it.
3: Our internal, like emotional habitat and our external habitat are very linked. Mm-hmm. You said something earlier about learning to be better at emotions is not just you're magically happier that mm-hmm. other things in your life change? Yes.
0: I mean, I think there are a couple of ways in which this manifests. One of them is just that emotions often are like the internal force that maintains our life habits. It's you you live in a particular way because moving outside of those entrained habits is scary or aversive in some way, like the cleaning example of how if your home is a mess, it's not because necessarily because you don't know how to make your home not a mess. Although cleaning is a much harder skill than most people. Treated as uh, speaking as someone who is bad at the, like the practical skills of cleaning as well as the emotional side of cleaning, but like it's primarily if it were just a matter of skill, you could just do it and get better at it, right? The thing that is holding you in place is the emotional reaction to the idea of changing your habits. So the specific reason why I started on all of this process was essentially. Relationship stuff. I'd started a new major relationship, and my previous one hadn't gone so well for reasons that were somewhere between emotional and communication issues. For i.e., like the same reason, basically every relationship doesn't go so well if it doesn't go so well. Oh, that's not quite true. Like there are pro- there actual.
3: Some people have actual problems, <laughs> yeah. but these things are. I mean, our yeah. our emotions really. Sometimes we treat them as if they're flaws. Mm-hmm. As if our emotions are getting in our way is some sort of judgment about us as mm-hmm. not being good people. But no, it just makes us people. For sure. So you started on this journey because of the external motivation of helping someone you're in a relationship with,
0: because mm-hmm. it's
3: really hard to do these things just for ourselves.
0: It is incredibly hard to do things just for ourselves. It's, And I mean, I guess that, that is exactly an example of this problem, right? It's that there was a particular habit of life that I was in. And what I needed to break out of that habit of life was the skills for dealing with uh, then figuring out these emotional reactions. But unfortunately, the thing, that the, the thing that the habits were maintaining was me not having these skills. And so having an ex- the external prompt of like a problem that was in the world rather than in my life as it was, was what was needed to essentially kick me out of that. And fortunately, it turns out that my standard approach of reading a thousand books, no, was one that worked for me. In this case, I probably haven't read a thousand books on this, but I certainly wouldn't broke. Surprise me. <laughs> uh, I read fewer books than people think I do. I may well have, bro- I may well have read more than a hundred books about emotions and therapy and the like, but I probably haven't unless I cast that brush really broadly, because I mean, everything's a book about emotions and therapy if you look at it right.
2: Have you read any books by Virginia Satir? Uh, I don't know who that is, I'm afraid. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent news. (laughs) Uh, Virginia Virginia was a family therapist who wrote a lot about processing emotions. And Mm -hmm. I have been a a huge fan of her work, and it's made a huge difference in my life and my career. So I highly recommend it.
0: Okay. Um, I will definitely take recommendations on books. Uh, What's... Uh, What's the book title, or what's your favorite book title by her? Uh,
2: I I think I would start with uh, The Satir Model, which is uh, S-A-T-I-R-M-O-D-E-L, The Satir Model, which is about her uh, family therapy model.
3: Chances are good you've read books based on her work. I was reading Jerry Weinberg's Quality Software Management Volume 2 the other day, which is entirely based on The Satir Model.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, He was a, a student of hers. One of the things that she likes to say is that the problem is never the problem. How we cope is the problem.
3: Can we have a productive response to the problem?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. I think often the problem is also the problem. Uh, it's, <laughs> um,
3: <laughs> but but, it's, but, it's often self-sustaining, like the, the habits yeah. you're talking about. the Our life habits form a self-sustaining system.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And then it took that external stimulus. It's not like an external stimulus somehow kicked you in the butt and changed you. It Mm -hmm. let you change yourself.
0: Yes, absolutely. I guess what I mean is, so let's continue with the cleaning example. It's the problem is that your flat is messy. And your flat is messy because of these life habits, because your emotional reactions to all these things um, and you do the appropriate emotional work, you unblock yourself on shame and anxiety around a messy flat, and you look around and you've saw, you've processed all these emotions, you fix how you respond to the problem, and it turns out your flat is still messy and you still have to clean it. And I think emotional reactions are what either – I'm making it sound like emotional reactions are all negative, and I really don't mean that. I mean it Everybody, that way, it's just – yeah.
3: Because once you've dealt with all that shame and the anxiety and stuff, and maybe you've picked up your flat some, Mm -hmm. and then you come in and you have like groceries and you stop and you immediately put them away, Mm -hmm. and you get a positive emotional feeling from that as you're in the process of keeping your flat tidy. Mm -hmm. The emotions can reinforce a clean flat as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is something that has always been one of my goals more than it is one of my active...
1: like. Let me, no, I love this distinction yeah.
3: that you're making here. Is yeah. it a goal or is it something I'm actively, mm-hmm. the word goal is yeah.
0: in. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think for me, start one of the other prompts other than the relationships at start was me essentially realizing that my emotional experience, it wasn't bad. Like it was, I mean, it wasn't great, but I wasn't. I wasn't actively miserable most of the time, but it also just didn't have very many positive features, which it turns out is also a form of depression. It's like, it's very easy to treat depression as just just like you're incredibly sad at uh, all the time, but that doesn't have to be what it can be like flatness is. And so I think very much from early on, pegged by my, my mind was that the getting better at emotions wasn't just about not being anxious. It was also about experiencing things like joy. It was about being happier. And I think having this as sort of an aspirational goal is been very motivating in terms of a lot of this work and in terms of a lot of trying to understand all of this. Because I think I don't want to be miserable. It only gets you so far. And if you have a... Problem that you're trying to solve, and it turns out to be an emotional block, you have to actually want to solve the problem, right? It's like, I, I think if you don't want a clean flat, then it doesn't matter how much you sort of fix your anxiety around that. You're still just going to go, okay, I'm no longer anxious about this messy flat. That's great. And your flat's going to stay messy because you don't actually want it not to be. And that's fine. It's just
3: fine. Yeah. Who cares? Especially unless now. It,
0: unless it becomes a health hazard, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, certain, certainly true. like if there's- If you're
3: affecting the neighboring flats with your brooches, that's bad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you're talking about joy as an aspirational goal, mm-hmm. uh, but it, but it's not the kind of goal where you check the box at the end of the year and declare yourself worthy of a 2% raise. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: absolutely not. And I think for all big goals, really, I find that I want to be very cliche and say it's the journey, not the destination. But, but...
3: it is, no, it totally is yeah. and see the word goal really irks me mm-hmm. because people often use it to mean something that you should actually reach, mm-hmm. like right every day for a month. That's a goal that you find benefits from hitting. But feelings of joy are as, as you said, aspirational. I call it a quest, personally. Mm-hmm. Some people call it a North Star. It is a direction mm-hmm. that can help you make decisions that will move you in that direction. But if you ever get there, s- no, that doesn't make sense. You, yeah. you wouldn't want to exist in a perpetual state of joy that would also be flat.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> no, absolutely. And I think even with big but achievable goals, it's still it's still quite helpful to treat them in this way. So I mean, for one, quite close to my heart right now, uh, like a goal of doing a PhD, I think you've got a three four year long project in the states i think it's more like five or six and if you treat the phd as if it's pass fail like either you get the phd or those three or four years have been wasted then that's not very motivating and also will um like will result in i think worse quality results in work like the thing to do is anxiety
3: and stress and shame yeah
0: yeah very much so (laughs) um and so just thinking in terms of like there's this big goal that you're trying to achieve of the phd but the goal doesn't just define like a pass fail it defines a direction like if you get better at paper writing in order to get your phd then even if you don't get your phd you got better at paper writing and that's good too right and
3: because the other outcome is the next version of you yes exactly exactly about who does this aspirational goal prompt you to become?
2: Mm-hmm. This reminds me of the difference between homeostasis and homeoresis. So, homeostasis is about maintaining a state. Mm-hmm. Uh, homeoresis is about maintaining a trajectory.
0: That makes sense. Yes, very, very much that distinction. And also, sort of one of one of the, the nice things about this sort of this focus on a trajectory is that even if like a third of the way through the trajectory, you decide you don't want to maintain it anymore, and actually you're fine where you are, and this goal was a bad idea, or you've got different priorities now, possibly because a global pandemic has arrived and changed all of your priorities, then you've still come all that way, right? It's... Like the, tra- the the trajectory doesn't just disappear backwards in time because you've um, you're no longer going in that direction you've still made all that progress you've still got derived some of the benefits from it
3: yeah there's another thing that maybe it's an American thing or maybe it's wider than that of if it doesn't last forever then it was never real mm-hmm. or if you don't achieve the stated goal then all your effort was wasted
0: yeah. I don't think it's just pu- is purely an American thing. It's hard to tell with how much American culture permeates everything, and also with um, I should say that although I'm quite British, I am also half American. So like I'm a I'm a weird third culture kid where my background doesn't quite make sense to ever to anyone. But yeah, no, I I very much feel that this idea that permanence is required for importance, and it's something that. Every time I sort of catch myself doing, I'm just like, oh, yes, David, you're doing the thing again. Have you tried not doing the thing? But it's hard. It's very internalized.
3: You know, if you clean your flat and a week later it's dirty again, well, it was clean for a week. That's not nothing.
0: Yeah. I do genuinely think that is one of the emotions that people struggle with, with cleaning. Uh, certainly it is for me. Oh, it's the,
3: yeah. It, it's, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's a process. It is not a destination. Nothing is ever mm-hmm. clean.
1: yeah. I think of myself sometimes as I want to be the kind of person that always has a clean home
2: mm-hmm.
1: as opposed to, I like, how, I like it when my house is clean.
3: Yeah. Is it about you or is it about, I mean, uh, some real effect you
1: want? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it about, a, is it about like the story that I project that I imagine I could project if I took a, you know, like I could project like on Instagram because my I'm I'm taking pictures of my pristine house all the time. Or is it just like I like to look around and see things where they belong?
0: Yeah, <laughs> I'm curious. Does does this result in your home being clean?
1: No, if that's, no, it a- that, that's sort of the issue, I think like, I, that I'm sort of just realizing is like it's not actually a powerful motivator because it's it's just not possible. Trying to imagine that like I could like be in this maintain homeostasis about it, it's not a possible goal, and so yeah, it's mm-hmm. not going to happen.
2: Yeah. The metaphor here is the change is motion, right? Mm-hmm. But it's always happening. So it's more like the flow of time than like motion through space. Mm-hmm. Actually staying not the same. Motion too.
3: Is yeah.
2: Staying the same is very hard to do and very expensive. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
3: No wonder it takes all of our feelings to help us achieve it.
0: <laughs> so um the reason I was asking, by the way, about whether this um this idea of being the sort of person who has a clean home is effective is that this ties in a little bit to what today's newsletter was about. About um, There's this problem where when you have self-images that are constructed around being good at particular things, being bad at those things is very much it's a shame trigger. It's like it's essentially it's you experience the world as clashing with your conception of yourself and we get really good at not noticing those things. So, yeah, you, you see, you see this a lot for with procrastination, for example, where you are putting off doing a thing because it does force you to co- to confront this sort of conflict between identity and reality. And I think sometimes the way out of it is just to identify less with the things that we want to achieve in the, in the world and just try and go, I'm doing this because I want to, and. If I didn't want to, that would be fine too. And essentially, becoming fine with both an outcome and failing to achieve that outcome is often the best way to achieve the outcome.
3: So practicing editing in order to practice editing, whether you achieve writing a book or not, whether you're good at it or not. Mm-hmm. And it does, it does come back to the journey. Um, if what you're doing is a means to an end, and yet not in line with that end... It often backfires because the means are the end in the end, they become it. So having a clean house is stupid. That's not a thing. Picking up is a thing. That's something you can do. And what I am picking up true fact, <laughs> you don't have to worry about whether you can, are you doing it? All right, then you can.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Whereas having a clean house is not a thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Very much. This kind of ties into the the comments about books earlier, where you were talking about how many books I read. And um, one of the things that I think very much stops people from reading books is the idea that, oh, God, there are so many books to read. I'll never get through all of them. And, or
3: I'll, if I start it, I have to finish it.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, people definitely shouldn't do that. Books are there to be abandoned if they're bad. Uh, <laughs> I <laughs> but, read
3: a lot of chapter ones.
0: Yeah. I have a slightly bad habit of buying books speculatively because they seem good. And as a result, I think my shelf of books that I'm probably never going to get around to read, but might do someday and might not, and either is fine, is probably at like 100 plus books now.
3: Oh, yeah. um, I love that shelf. I have big piles everywhere. <laughs> There's always something to read wherever I sit. Yeah. And and most of it I will never read, but it's beautiful.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm currently in the very weird experience where I right for possibly the first time in my life, I have more bookshop space than books.
3: <gasps> That's not a stable state.
0: No, no. I mean, this will, this will be fixed by the time I leave this flat. Um, the piles will return. Um, you will maintain that
3: trajectory. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because I'm just reading. I, I can read these this many books because I just sit down and read. And at some point, I will finish a book or I will abandon a book and both are fine. But... I think if you treat this as a goal where your goal is to read all of the books then like that's not the thing and yeah. it's not and it's also it's not uh, I think people go my goal is to read 100 books a year and um, or I don't know how it's normal like, people estimate. Really your
3: goal are. to learn something
0: Yeah exactly and, and the means
3: is reading books yeah
0: Yeah and I think if one instead just goes I like reading so I'm going to re- and it's useful so I'm going to read books uh you'll probably end up reading a lot more than setting some specific numerical goal and also you r- you run into sort of goodhart's law things where if your goal is to read 100 books at Ersey in a year great buy the misterman set But wait is that a thing in the Mr. Men are a series of kids' books, which tells- like st-
3: big smiley face?
0: Yeah, that, exactly. That's the one.
3: <laughs> and,
0: and you can, you can read a hundred of those in a week. I assume there are a hundred <laughs> Mr. Men books. I don't actually know. And yeah, whereas, you whereas then, then,
3: you might, th- then again, you might choose like dynamics in action and never get through it and then feel bad about it. And that would be pointless because you learned more from the introduction than you did from the Mr. Men series.
0: I don't think I've even opened my copy of Dynamic Connection. I yeah. bought it after I well, I think you recommended it on Twitter or something and I was just like that does sound interesting. I will speculatively buy this book.
3: It's a hard <laughs> book.
0: Yeah, it's it's far from the hardest book on my shelves, but it's definitely in the top. I mean, I confidently say top 20, but it might be higher than that. I just haven't done a comparative analysis and I don't want to uh, <laughs> overpromise. <laughs>
3: Uh, the point being, read books because you want to. Yeah, or sometimes because you want to have read them. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things like I may not want to pick up, but I do want to have picked up, mm-hmm. and I can use that to motivate me.
0: Yeah, and even then, there are like there are two versions of that. Uh, it's and both are good actually. I think one of them sounds bad. Like one version is like you want to have read it because you want to understand the material in it, and the other one is just you want to be able to say that you have read it, and thus you, like. And both for the status game and also just sort of as a box ticking. Like no, that's I think, not
3: completely wrong.
0: That's no, it's not completely wrong. It's a, something
3: out of it. Yeah. On the other hand, if you want to read it because you want to be the kind of person who would read it, I don't know about that one.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. It's. I think.
3: Then again, life habits. Sometimes, yeah. if you want to be the kind of person who picks up, and so you fake it mm-hmm. long enough to form the habit, then you are.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's. I read a book recently, of course I did, I know by uh, Agnes Callard uh, called Aspiration, which I'm glad I read it. I cannot really recommend it to people who aren't philosophers, because there's a thing that often happens when reading analytic philosophy, where the author clearly has a keen insight into an important problem that you as the reader lack. And the way they express that insight is through an entire book's worth of slightly pedantic arguments with other analytic philosophers who have wrong opinions about the subjects. And
3: half the dynamics in action is like that.
0: Yeah. I think
2: it's it's a very common pattern. Was it written as a thesis?
0: I don't think so. I'm not certain about that, but it might've been, I think it's ended up being quite an influential book. And I think uh, she was mentioning that there's going to be a, specialist you have a journal coming up out recently about essentially its impact and responses to it but i think it's just genuinely that analytic philosophers had a lot of really wrong opinions about this subject and, and anyway so the the relevance of this is the idea she introduces in the book is that of a proleptic value where
3: proleptic yeah
2: forwards.
0: Yeah, proleptic basically, I think originally comes from grammar, and it means something that stands in place for another thing. And so a proleptic value is what you do when you're engaged in a process of aspiration, which is trying to acquire values that you don't currently have. So she uses the example of like a music teacher where, or sorry, a music student who wants to learn to appreciate a genre of music that they do not currently appreciate. And they find a teacher who does appreciate that genre, and they basically use their respect for that teacher as a proleptic value. They basically say, I don't currently value this genre of music, but I trust your judgment and I value your opinion. And I will use your feedback and your And that respect for you as a value that stands in place of the future value of appreciating this genre of music that I hope to acquire. So I think this thing of reading a book because you want to be the sort of person who reads that kind of book can have a similar function where even though you don't really want to read the book, like that process of aspiration gives you a hook into becoming the sort of person who does want to read the book.
3: That's like being the mountain for each other Yeah. in some ways. You're not going to get a view yet. You're only 10 Mm -hmm. feet off the ground. But meanwhile, just climb to climb. Mm -hmm. Climb because it's here.
0: Yeah. I'm not necessarily very good at being the sort of person reading books and this for this reason partly because there's so many books i have so many other reasons to read but yeah
3: yeah you're fine you don't yeah. need more reasons to read books
0: <laughs> yeah but i think like two books that i have read mostly to have read them rather than necessarily because i was having an amazing time and learning lots of things reading them are seeing like a state by james scott which it's a good book i don't i don't think it's a bad book but it is very much it is a a history book that also has a big idea and there are like 70,000 blog posts about the big idea so if you um so if you're going in one thing just the big idea read one of the blog posts but i'd seen it referenced so many times that i was just like you know this seems like a book that i should read and my opinion is now basically that like if you like history books and if you want lots of detail then yeah it's a great book to read if you just want the big idea don't
3: Right, because other people have presented it more succinctly, mm-hmm. which probably happens with your aspiration book that you talked about. I
0: would like it to have happened with the aspiration book. Uh the aspiration book is only a few years old.
3: You written a oh, okay. So it's it's too soon for that. So you'll write about it
0: if you yeah, haven't yet. I, I haven't yet. Uh, so yeah, so looking at this was it was published in two thousand and eighteen. And yeah, the paperback is from 2019. So like this is really cutting edge philosophy to the degree that there is such a thing. Yeah. Uh,
2: oh no, yeah, that's that like mean? There's that totally
0: a case. thing. Uh, well, I've I've had this argument with philosopher friends where I was arguing that it was a thing and the philosophers were and the philosopher friend was just like, is it a thing though? Because the interesting thing about philosophy is just that, like, it never goes out of date. People are sort of engaging with the entire historical canon. So, the question is not like, does new philosophy get done? The question is more, I think, like, is it's this really less a
3: cutting edge? Yeah, or exactly. Kind of a gentle nuzzling.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, but also like, is this more cutting edge than I don't know, reading Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics? I don't, I don't know. Like, I personally, I personally less. agree. Yeah, I personally think that there is a cutting edge, and this is on it, but plenty of room for philosophical dialogue on that subject, Um, if you can sort of dig Socrates up and uh, ask him about (laughs) it. Uh, Yeah, and speaking of philosophy, the other book that I have read essentially to have read it, rather than because I was getting a lot out of it, was uh, Wittgenstein's uh, Philosophical Investigations, where I essentially read it in order to confirm to myself that I had already sort of picked up enough Wittgenstein by osmosis that I didn't really need to read it which largely true.
1: This is the part of the show where we like to reflect on what we took from everything and sort of just wrap things up a little bit.
3: I have one thing written down. We talked a bit about who you are and who you want to be as a person and how sometimes what you want to do is in conflict with how you think of yourself.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like when you
3: think of yourself as good at something, it's hard to be bad at it long enough to learn better. It occurs to me that in our society, we're all about getting to know yourself and then expressing your true self, which is very much a homeostasis more than a homeoresis. But what if we tried not knowing yourself? What if we tried just like, I don't know who I am, and then I can surprise myself and have more possibilities? That's my reflection.
2: All of this discussion about happiness and pleasure and aversion and striving reminds me a lot of Buddhist philosophy, or what I should say is it reminds me a lot of my very limited understanding of Buddhist philosophy, specifically this idea that you shouldn't judge your life by the outcome of your preferences, that you shouldn't identify yourself with your, your wants and cling to the outcome of, of things. Um, you can acknowledge that these things have happened and you can avoid unpleasant things, but you shouldn't be the owner of all of your desires. Instead, what you should do is measure your life by how well you follow the intentions that arise out of your values. Yeah. Maybe to
1: put it another way, I'm starting to think like maybe I could think of myself as the sum of all of the habits I maintain or don't and try to think of outcome of those habits as a um what a lagging indicator i guess or like like as a secondary instead of and think more of myself of like what are the things that i sort of find i'm naturally doing and if i'm not what can i do to just try to enforce it for myself that i'm going to do that more or maybe i don't care
0: so I'm not finding myself with a sort of a single cohesive summation of the conversation, but I've really enjoyed it. And there's been a couple of sort of things I'm going to take away from it and mull over a bit more. It's I really liked the homeostasis versus homeoresis distinction. It's um I hadn't heard I'd obviously heard the first word, but not the second word. And so I'm gonna sort of think about that a bit more. And sort of tying onto that, I very much like Jessica's point of how a clean home isn't really a thing. You can only do cleaning, and sort of thinking much more in terms of the ongoing process than trying to think of it as a static goal that you are perfectly maintaining at all times. And sort of slightly orthogonally to that, but uh, I'm also just going to look up Satire as an author and maybe read some of her books <laughs> um, because, Yay! Uh, as we've established, always up for more reading. <laughs>
1: That should wrap up our episode 223. Uh, I'd like to thank David for joining us and we'll see you next time.